vouchers. We ain't got no vouchers. We don't need no vouchers. I don't have to show you any stinking vouchers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. Back after a very long break of doing various different things from the both of us. Um, I am Anders Holmes, and joining me across Zoom is Adam Holmes, uh, the uh, the very the very toit. Faja, the Faja. He's a daddy. Uh, thank you. Yes, nothing could be my father from the truth. Um, yeah, I'm a dad now. Uh, yeah, so, Adam. Um, Adam. Uh, Adam is a father for the first time. I am your father. Uh, yes, uh, I have. Um, Lily uh, gave birth to a baby girl uh, two weeks ago, and um, yeah. So I'm my my wife <laughs> in my home where my wife sleeps. When my children play with their toys. Um, yes, I have a child now. So I am not just a godfather anymore. I am a father. And it is amazing, but I am also a little sluggish. So if I sound like I'm talking bollocks on this, that's because I haven't had enough sleep. And also, if I have to suddenly rush out, it means that someone has uh, done a poo or something. So, yeah. So I uh, so there, there may be disruptions to the recording. But right now, we're good. So why don't we jump into this uh, thing? We're continuing with our top 10 odyssey through the decades, right? Yeah, we're sort of getting to the last few episodes uh the... yeah, this is these are, these are the episodes where people are going to start like mm, no, 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 i haven't seen any films from this era it's all black and white and stuff and i'm going to tell you now listener if you're hovering over that pause button and thinking of deleting this episode don't do that because there are good movies in the um early part of the hollywood times and 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 seriously like there is a lot of gold to be mined in the 40s in the 30s and yes in the 1920s so stay tuned through these episodes um because you might not have seen a lot of these films and um and maybe you have and that's fine um but um i know some of you dougie haven't so um yeah so I, stay, I saw dougie you, recently i went to you paris saw dougie that's right i saw dougie in march you saw dougie in august we have dougie updates we've we've, uh, we've covered dougie we've dug visits dougie. We, we, saw, <laughs> we saw him he's alive yeah um yeah so um but yes dougie i'm talking to you stay on the stay let's keep listening subscribe rate share etc um because these are important episodes yeah i'm uh slowly trying to get our youtube channel up sort of up and running again and i've been posting little uh snippets of the episodes i've done a couple one of which is me talking about the big heat and the 12 angry men so i'll be doing be going through a lot of the old episodes and posting little clips just to kind of give a sense like if you like this check out the full episode or if you don't like this uh please don't listen to the whole thing because you will have a nervous breakdown um yeah. we also can i announce have an instagram channel coming so stay tuned yes. for that Yes, we do. And and we also, we did, because we did mention on the last episode about our Utah trip, which I have all the footage to sort of put together and edit. I haven't had a chance to do that because I've been traveling. And this is like, this is like the lost Orson Welles movie. This is, this is all the, this is yeah, like, the, the this other is side the, of the wind. I have been meaning to do it, but I no just. No one cares. No one cares about this. It will be do some kind of YouTube thing at some point about when we were together in May and you're going to enjoy it or not. And it doesn't matter. So, yeah. you know, give Anders a bloody break. If it makes you if, like the, the sort of aim of the, the, the video, if it makes you go to Utah and go to Monument Valley, then we've done our then we've done our work. Well, except we're not sponsored by the Utah Tourist Board. So I don't... No, 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 we're not. Like, uh, it should, we should influence you know, people to go to Monument Valley and actually learn something about the location as we did. Yeah, except that we're not going to... 
I just assumed people just gave us money. But anyway, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So there's no way of doing that because we don't have a Patreon because we are uh, interested in just giving you content for free. Um, okay, look, nineteen um, forties. It is a, a lot decade. Of film noir in this period, I have to say. This yeah, was like well, I feel like the era of film noir. Yeah, yeah. This was but like it's, peak. what's the main event of the nineteen forties that influences everything? The war. Yes, la guerre. Uh, so it is very influenced by World War Two, as our list will be. I think the the thing about film noir, of course, is that it was a you know these were easy crime pictures to make during an era of you know s- sinister forces at work. A lot yes. of the people who made the pictures were directors who had fled the Nazis in Europe, um, like Otto Preminger and Fritz Lang, and Max um, Ophuls as well. Yeah, and so you have um, you have this sort of style that's both very American but also influenced by um, the Europeans. And then, of course, when the Germans are defeated, France is liberated. They get all these pictures that hadn't been coming over the Atlantic, and they get them all at once. And they discern this theme that's emerging, and you get as a result film noir coined by the French. So yeah, it's it's very much a style that's associated with the forties. But it's not the only thing that's going on in the forties. There are great movies coming out of all kinds of places, including, surprisingly, you might think, Italy and Britain, both of which were hugely uh, affected by the war, especially Italy, uh, which doesn't have any money. All of its cities are um, not in ruins exactly, but certainly suffering from extreme poverty and um, and the ravages of war, disease, uh, also the aftermath of what was essentially a civil war uh, between fascists and, and anti-fascists. You know, in Britain, you've got... Uh, huge financial issues as well and, and a sort of deflated uh, the deflation of, of victory in World War II which also came with sort of losing a lot of their empire and so on so there's like really really interesting things going on and in, in, it's, in, in Britain in this period you get some incredibly beautiful uh, movies some of which go into the realm of the magical you know um, if you look at Powell and Pressburger but then you in Italy they go the other way and, and, and you get the neorealism of um uh rossellini and others so yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot happening yeah not a lot of westerns not a lot of really good westerns you get some but not a lot of like the 50s is really the decade of the western i mean you have your my darling clementine and a few other films like that you've got a couple of like fucking brilliant westerns let's be honest she wore a ribbon etc actually there are none in my list interestingly so I don't think I have any questions in my list either. No. It's well, all... should we get into our lists? Yes. Uh, I went first last time, so I will... You can go first this time. I've got my little moleskin, so I can actually remember what I'm supposed to be talking about. Uh, okay, so number 10 on my list is um, is a film noir, uh, and it is Out of the Past, um, which um, was directed I have that by... a little bit higher on my list. <laughs> You do okay. Do you want me to wait to talk about it then until we get to yours? No, because it's we're gonna wait a long time to you talk about the film now, and then I can just give my little bits about it because it's very, it's quite, it's kind of higher up on my list, so it's in like the top five. Okay, okay. Well, anyway, it's directed by Jacques Tourneur. It comes out in 1947. It was. Um, uh, it's it's a quintessential film noir. It's got Robert Mitchum uh, as a, a former private detective who falls in with a femme fatale, um, and um, who's uh, played brilliantly by Jane Greer. Um, the villain is Kirk Douglas, and it all ends very, um, you know, bleakly, as often is the case in in the world of noir. Um, 
but it's just such a great, exciting, suspenseful um, plot that's also full of sex and eroticism and betrayal and um, just a really fantastic sort of mood. I love the the, the interval where they're in Mexico. Um, you know, it's it's so um, it's just so atmospheric. This film uh, and it and it draws on so many different aspects of of noir. You know, so many different things that were you know almost became cliches like the sort of the guy the private detective in the trench coat the 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 alluring but deadly woman um you know the the hapless um weak-willed villain and and just the, the cinematography is astonishingly beautiful um and um yeah i just i mean i really can't say enough good stuff about this uh this film i mean in in you can pick so many um pick so many movies out of the hat that you know from the film noir if it's a genre or the style um but um but this one i really feel like is 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 about as quintessential as they get the cinematography by the way is by nicholas musaraka who was a sort yeah, of who had know, worked with uh jacques tourneau on cat people yeah cat people which is amazing the hitchhiker um stranger on the third floor stranger on the third floor which is really really good um and so yeah lots of lots of great credits there but um yeah, it's 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 maybe um, it's it's probably one of the great greatest Robert Mitchum movies as well. Uh, certainly the best from his sort of early period. Um, so if you're a if you're a Mitchum fan, definitely check it out. Um, and um, and yeah, for for Kirk Douglas completionists, um, I think his you know performance in this one of his first really big roles is um, is really enjoyable. So anyway, um, but let's wait till we get we can we can circle back to it later on on the list. What's it? Your number ten. So my number ten is a little bit uh, different from uh, your number ten, and it Good. <laughs> it's not it's not a noir film, even though I do have a few noirs on my top ten because there's a bunch of great in this period um so my number 10 is a lovely little film about an elephant with big ears and his best friend is a mouse it's dumbo dumbo oh yeah, yeah dumbo's well yeah what can you say it's That's an absolute pretty... just it's a delight of a film and i i yeah. I, I, I watched it I think it was one of those films I watched during the pandemic just to kind of put a smile on my face to a really during a sort of really really kind of like bad and sort of you know troubled time as it as it was for a lot for for everyone and um it's just such a really wonderful film I mean yes of course like a lot of early Disney films pretty racist the birds yeah. you know that that whole thing yes it does have that let's not you know edit it out and let's just sort of say yes there let's yeah be be better than that and stuff but i think anyone who's ever felt like like an outsider because like dumbo is like a big elephant with big ears and everyone makes fun of him and he's sort of like the joke of the circus and you know the only one that really is there for him is his mother but then there's a point where like the mother is put in a cage and oh man don't even i can't even hear this right now and my emotions are so raw if you describe this i'm actually going to go to pieces of the podcast people have seen it all right the mother people have seen it yeah yeah, yeah. you disney, know the whole thing it's, disney's it's brutal about mother stuff okay it's, it's fucked up i don't know what the fuck was wrong with that man but anyway well they had um, the, i mean the, in the 40s as well you had bambi where like the mother gets like in the background and then you have the father being like your mother's dead bambi you must come with me his father's such a prick bambi. he's such a dick he's like didn't even give him a hug he's like yeah your mother's dead come with me dickhead don't cry. It's like we I'd love to cry. see a noir version of Dumbo, by the way. Yeah. Well, they did do a they did do a Disney remake in 2019 out of the the the, the three that came out that year that I saw 
the Lion King, Aladdin, and Dumbo. And Dumbo was the the one of the three which I liked, and it's because it was directed by Tim Burton. I think the sort of marriage of the story of an outsider, and I think knowing who Tim Burton is and his filmmaking style, Dumbo played by Johnny Depp. No, 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 it's a CGI thing. And he had Danny DeVito and Michael Keaton and Colin Farrell and a bunch of actors. So it was it was good fun. But yeah, the the thing that was Danny you know, did this, Dumbo. This film actually helps Disney Studios in this time because, you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia were not huge successes at the box office. So they were able to kind of recoup. um, They were able to recoup their money back from those films, mainly because of how... I get why why Fantasia wasn't a success because people are Philistines, but... um... I think that's surprising about Pinocchio. Pinocchio is great. Yeah. I mean, you know, despite the fact that it came out during the war, Dumbo was hugely successful. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they cut the bit where he bombs Dresden. But yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. It's a delightful film. Um, And I'm sure lots of people have seen it. If you haven't seen it, that's insane. Um, Yeah. Watch um, the I mean, I mean, I liked the one, but watch the original. The original's better. Yeah, we will, we will personally come around to your house and kick you in the behind if you watch. Uh, um, I have to say behind because I can't say ass. <laughs> if you, My if you, uh, is killing me. If you um, if you watch the CGI remake, um, yes, I can't remember what I was going to say. So let's move on. What's your number nine? My number nine, okay, is another film about parent-child stuff. Uh, and it is an Italian movie. It is Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, which Snap. came out in 1940. That's also my number nine. <laughs> no way! That's, that's my number nine, too. Yeah. A, has that ever happened before? That we, I mean, nope. I know we've had overlaps so in the same position. Yeah, I put Bicycle Thieves at number nine, too. Hey! hey. Okay, well, anyway. Um, well, Speaking you can, of stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> um, La, yeah, what is it in Italian? Ladi di biciclette. Sorry. Yeah, the ladi um, di biciclette. Yeah. The lads of the bicycles. Um, the Bicycle Thieves, 1948, directed by Vittorio De Sica. One of the most heartbreaking films about struggling economically in uh, the 20th century. It is the quintessential Italian neo realist movie in some ways, I think. Um, the performances in this movie by not particularly professional actors i don't think um you know yeah i think i think a lot of these movies had essentially non-actors people who haven't been like classically trained as performers i think they just picked out you know i mean the thing everyone in this movie just looks like they live in the area where the film is set i think they they did i think he found them in the you know this is set in rome it's it's um about a father who so heartbreaking he pawns his 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 wife's bed sheets that they were given as a wedding present to buy a bicycle so that he can deliver um well he, he becomes like up, a he puts posters up posters up yeah for for um for films for, for gilda isn't it with rita hayworth might have been yeah i think so um so it's a sort of movie within a movie that um uh yeah and then his bicycle gets stolen so he can't do his job and he and his son go looking for the bicycle thief and of course they never find it but it's like a moment where he and his son kind of come together but then, do you remember that bit where he hits him yeah he hits the boy oh oh god that's so heartbreaking I mean, yeah it's and just then they like, go to the they go to the pizza restaurant afterwards to kind of make yeah. up for it yeah oh it's just it's like 
and the kid is so good in this movie i mean the kid is yeah. like, the, it's like the same it, i think it's one of the best child performances ever um but yeah, vittorio de sica had this like he was such a sort of man of the people director like he really had this sense of social justice i think he was working class that like, he had you know he made films that were about um regular people um and that's not to say that you know fellini didn't have that touch or rossellini either but like um they i think they were less preoccupied just with the ordinary day-to-day struggles um yeah. and i think the seeker really sort of bathes in that and and finds magic in it you know if you watch miracle in milan i mean that's practically a you know practically sort of biblical in 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 terms of the way it sort of harnesses a kind of magic but um but in this there's no magic it's just like the grind of daily life and and but he does find joy in it i mean and that's that's the well i when i sat down to watch it i was expecting a much bleaker film than i than i got it's actually incredibly um you know big-hearted and 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 not necessarily optimistic but it it does it it's it leaves you feeling good about humanity you know? a little like, bit yeah i mean the heart of this the heart of the film is the relationship between the father and the son and i think that's you know it's not you know, I mean, the, the the whole search for the bike does drive the film, but you become much more invested in the father and son relationship as the film goes on, particularly in scenes where it all becomes lost that he's not going to find the thief that that stole his bike. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's just so. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lovely it's it's lovely film. It's one of the deservedly one of the most famous um, films from this. From Italy, I'd say probably when most when people sort of reel off the names of famous Italian movies, this is this is up there with, um, you know, definitely up there with films like Eight and a Half. And yeah, like exactly. So, so it's, yeah, do give it a watch if you haven't yet. Um, and um, and yeah, have uh, be prepared for some emotional gut punches. And but also just a great like time travel. You know, one of the things I love that certain other films on this list this applies to as well. Where you, when you watch films in the series, you actually get to sort of see what the cityscapes look like right in the aftermath of World War II, which is also really interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're interested in history, and and, and if you're not, you you should be. Uh, you know, it, it is it is a, a fantastic opportunity to kind of go back and 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 see you know almost documentary style footage. You know, a film that's not on my list is 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 um, Rossellini's. Um, it, I'm it's Rossellini, right? Not Rossini. Rossellini, yeah, Rossellini, yeah. yeah. Rossini's a composer. Rossellini's uh, Germany Year Zero. I mean, that's a fucking amazing film. Um, could have made my list, didn't, but that, you know, it, it's all filmed in post-war Berlin. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of thing. And there's another film on my list, which really is like, could only have been made in one time and place, but we'll get to that. Uh, so that means you've covered your number nine. So I go to my number eight. Your number eight. Yeah. All right. My number eight is Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. No, no notorious it's not on your list no not on my list haven't seen it i'd love it if we just kept doing the same (laughs) um okay so um this is a film i think divides opinion a bit because some people perhaps don't see it as being one of the great hitchcock films i really do um it is a film where ingrid bergman plays the daughter of a of a nazi agent or something um or like a nazi that fled germany he's dead and um but his his accomplices are being sought by like the cia and the cia uh agent in charge of figuring out the plot is carrie grant who um 
basically recruits Ingrid Bergman to go and seduce Claude Rains, who's a Nazi who's on the run in South America. And so she ends up actually marrying uh, the Claude Rains character, Alexander Sebastian, who has this like completely sinister mother played uh, brilliantly by Leopoldine Constantin, um, who sort of suspects uh, Bergman from the beginning. And, and, there's, and, and the, the, the suspense is amazing as the sort of net closes in on her. But, it's, but obviously all the time, all the while she's doing this, she's also falling uh, madly in love with Cary Grant, who wouldn't. And he's, he's just so cool in this film. I mean, this is like, you know, when you see Ian Fleming or when you, you read about how Ian Fleming wanted Grant to play James Bond, you can really see it in this, uh, in this movie. Um, so um, it's just, and, and and it's such a pleasure to see three such 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 amazing stars. You know, Reigns, Bergman, and Grant all kind of vying uh, with each other. Um, and it's a tight hour and a half. Um, really uh, makes good use of a Rio de Janeiro location. Um, it definitely has a sort of Bondy quality to it, but um, it's it's just Hitchcock really just kind of leaning into Hollywood and 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 doing his thing uh beautifully um so yeah can't speak highly enough of it yeah i think um uh mission impossible 2 takes a lot of inspiration from notorious into the plot I, you know what and there's that really pops the balloon there <laughs> Let's just talk about the beautiful like 1940s you're like mission impossible 2 <laughs> Yeah, oh, great. I don't always find a way to bring Tom Cruise into fucking anything. <laughs> Just in case anyone was thinking that the plot of the film was similar than Notorious, it's Mission Impossible Two. Yeah, it's, it's really, really. Yeah, this that's what this movie will go down in history for. Not the amazing wine cellar scene, not the Hitchcock cameo, not the incredible suspense, the performances. No, it was just an inspiration for one of the worst Tom Cruise movies, <laughs> directed by John it, Woo. <laughs> But can you tell me your number eight before I cancel this podcast? <laughs> so my number eight is uh, Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City. Okay, so I, uh, <laughs> you're not going to believe this. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. That's my number seven. Oh, really? Oh, come on. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, well, you go first. Okay, so yeah, the first time I, because when I was at Met Film School, we were doing we had like a day when we were week where we were talking about different genres of film or different film movements. And one of the days was where we were looking at Italian neorealism. And that day we actually did watch the bicycle thieves, which was my second time, which I watched it. And one of the clips from the film that we watched was Rome open city. It's the whole thing at the end with all the torture stuff and the priest and everything. Yeah. And it really kind of captured my mind. And I was like, I really want to watch this film at some point. And then cut three years later when I'm at the European film college in Denmark, then we're watching it in our big cinema and i was just thinking wow this is a very like heart-wrenching movie but like Good you know like what you were saying with the bicycle thieves you know that film you know rome open city i mean of course it you know a lot of people get killed and executed by the nazis in that film but there's a sense of hope in it you know given the fact that you know it's it comes out 1945 at the end of the war and everything so but you know at the same time it is a very suspenseful bleak film and I well, like, yeah, I mean, it has also moments of kind of, of decency. Well, yeah, I mean, I love that, like the kids kind of represent the future, you know, when they and, yeah. and they're also the ones that like blow up shit. But yeah, um, I love that scene where they blow up the German rail yard and they suddenly all appear like this little gang. I don't <laughs> think that's so cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's basically two real um, sort of performances that anchor the film, right? It's the priest and um, 
Anna Magnani's character, Pina. Yeah. Uh, is it Aldo Fabrizzi who plays the priest, I think? Yeah, Don Pietro Pellegrini. Um, he's amazing. And and his face, I mean, but her, I mean, Anna Magnani became, you know, one of the most kind of um, extraordinary kind of uh, early Italian like international Italian movie stars. Um, and she's not like Gina Lollabrigida or Sofia Loren, who were, who were also, as much known as be, both good actors, but also known for being great beauties. Anna Magnani was, was really, I think, known for being a fantastic, just actor, beautiful woman in her own right. Now I'm really digging a hole. It's a, she's a beautiful, beautiful woman, beautiful, beautiful great, great personality. But no, um, what I'm saying is she didn't, become a, she didn't become a sex symbol in the way that Sofia Loren and Gina Lollabrigida did, but she became a renowned um performer and this film is a big part of it and she's not in a lot of the film but no. where she is 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 she packs a punch and she obviously is is um famous later for mama roma and paisan and other movies but um she's terrific in this i mean this is the one that she'll be remembered for yeah helen mirren i'm just reading trivia on her now helen mirren named her as her acting idol and burke lancaster considered her the greatest actress with whom he ever worked with and Tennessee Williams, after meeting her, said, I never saw a more beautiful woman. Enormous eyes, skin the color of Devonshire cream. Creepy. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. But he wrote, but, but he wrote the he wrote the role of Serafina in his play, The Rose Tattoo, you know, but and I think she won the Oscar for She did win an Oscar for that, yeah. Yeah, she played the film adaptation. I think there wasn't Selznick involved, and didn't he get obsessed with her as well? I mean, she she obviously well, had an Roberto effect. Rossellini left her for Ingrid Bergman. I mean, this is one of the great movie scandals of the 40s. I think we should do, you know what I think we should do? I think we should do a podcast all about the Bergman-Rossellini thing, because it's really fascinating. Hollywood basically binned her because she got divorced and went off to, ran off with an Italian guy and went to make these amazing movies in Italy. We could do like a little short, we could do like a little short series, like you must remember this kind of thing. Yeah, we'll just rip off a, a, a much better podcast with more listeners. Yeah, exactly. I'd love it if, if, if what's her name, Karina Longworth, sued us. <laughs> just come to our house and just be like, like that, break her legs. Although then maybe that way we would get to me. That's how we would get to me. What's his face? Um, Ryan she's Johnson. With Ryan Johnson, yeah. Yeah. Um, before I forget, I would sort of compare this movie a little bit to uh, Melville's film, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's film, Army of Shadows, which um, also deals with resistance members and also is a very sort of bleak and very kind of not so optimistic war film because it's just about a bunch of guys just trying to get by until the war ends. And, you know, it's like it's this is this is what they do. And there's nothing it's not a very sort of it's not like a 1940s film like with the americans like yeah we're gonna kick everyone's ass and we're gonna win and everything like that and you know but this it's like it's bleak as hell and there's no hope and it's just like we're just gonna we're just getting by as best we can well i think that european i mean i think army of shadows shows the way in which the occupation just bleeds society dry in every respect i will say one of the things army of shadows doesn't do is show ordinary people in the way that this film does i mean this film mm. goes out of its way to just show ordinary people caught up in the ravages of war um in a way that's really affecting but um army of shadows is a good movie too but not from this decade so um no it isn't but it is very good it's a better comparison than mission impossible 2 um so that's good at least yeah uh, okay so uh that was my number seven so what's your number seven my number seven is uh speaking of you must remember this casablanca <laughs> 
That's not on my list. I was surprised. I was sort of, I, I, I assumed I would put it on my list, but actually there's a different Bogart movie on my list. But uh, okay, go ahead. Casablanca. Yeah. Um, yeah. Directed by Michael Curtis, uh, released in 1942. There is, um, I'm, we, I think we've probably talked about the, um, what's the French national anthems called again? The, 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 the Marseillaise. The Marseillaise, when they're singing it, a lot of the people who had fled France, they're, they're in that scene. Yeah. Marcel Dalio. Um, bunch of the other people in that, yeah, people who fled, yeah, Nazi occupied France. It's a that there's a reason why that's one of the most famous scenes in cinema. Um, and it, yeah, it's cheesy, um, but it's also like I defy anyone to watch that and not feel just stirred. You know, the Germans are seeing the Wacht am Rhein, and then suddenly they get drowned out by the Marseillaise. And you know what's great about that scene? It actually does do some really important narrative work because. Okay, so if you're listening to this and you don't know the plot of Casablanca, the fuck. Okay, so just follow. So, so, so Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, again, um, you know, we know that she's had this affair with Bogart and then she left him in the rain at the train station and he's all sad. And she comes to Casablanca and she's with this dude, played by Paul Henry, right? Victor Laszlo. And all we know about him is he's a resistance hero. But because we, because it's a Hollywood movie, we're conditioned to want our guy, Bogart, to get the girl, right? So we see Laszlo as the other guy, and we're like, fucking hell, what's this guy about? He's not as cool as Bogart. He's not this, he's not that. So we like, we're not really on his side. I mean, we are on his side because he's against the Nazis, but we're not really like rooting for him. And then in this scene, he steps up and he says, play the Marseillaise, and Bogart gives that little nod, and you just the hairs rise on the back of the neck, and he sings it in this like power you know he he leads the course and you see bergman looking at him and you're like that's why she's in love with this guy and that is why at the end of the movie we don't mind that she goes off with him no we don't um but also that ending is great too and also just the dialogue is amazing it's one of the greatest screenplays of all time and also claude rains again makes his iconic uh appearance as captain renault it's like I'm shocked. I'm shocked. There's gambling here. <laughs> You're winning. Yeah, oh, thank you. There's so many great. They do. We'll be at your office at eight. I'll be there at ten. Yeah. <laughs> Round up the usual suspects. I mean, it's 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 full of uh, it's full of iconic dialogue. It is. It, when I was at um, when I was at university, I watched this film twice a year. I loved it. Like it was just. I used to love just like sitting down with a bottle of wine, a pack of fags, and just like enjoying the fuck out of Casablanca with some of my mates like it's just such a like it's it's one of the great hangout movies yeah it's it's like Rio Bravo or something you know you just want to be in this film yeah I mean also like Peter Lorre's in this movie as well as Sydney Greenstreet uh you know a bit of a Maltese Falcon reunion briefly yeah 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 they're great as well and um Conrad Veidt as Major Heinrich Strasser is also really great. Who was, a, who was also, you know, has to be said, he plays a Nazi in the film, but he was he was an, an avid anti-Nazi who fled uh, Germany, you know. Yeah. Um, interestingly, the film was a huge, um, huge hit because um, of the Casablanca conference, which had nothing to do with the movie, but the, the Allies had invaded North Africa, and then there was this conference between Churchill and Roosevelt in Casablanca and so when that happened it just helped this helped propel you know ticket sales um and it, and I think this you know Bogart got you know his big breakthrough was probably the Maltese Falcon and High Sierra but this I think established him yeah as like 
one of the leading men. Um, and his scenes with Bergman are just incredible. But you know, he had to give him lifts in his shoe because he was not. He was. He's a short. He was a very short man, and they had to make him taller than Bergman. No, so well, yeah. Um, that's what lifts. But um, also, uh, really worth um, call shouting out uh, Dooley Wilson, uh, plays Sam. Yeah, who plays the song that made the movie really, really famous. You must remember this. Yeah, which is a which is a great title for a podcast. I know we shouldn't plug other people's podcasts, but Korean Longworth really did well yeah. coming up with that. I wish we'd done that. Anyway, mm. Holmes movies doesn't have quite the same ring to it. <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah, but, uh, it's, uh, um, but yeah, I I just, I love this movie a lot. I just, you know, it's you, like you said, you just sink back and it's just like, it's a real kind of like, ah, movie. You just it's feel like meeting up with an old friend. Yeah. And also it's okay. just like, Bogart is amazing. Just his whole performance, the his arc that he goes on is a great. And, you know, Ingrid Bergman is amazing too. And also it does they do do a very funny Simpsons skit with the alternative ending to Casablanca. Oh yeah, that's very that's, that's very, also fun. very funny. Um, okay. Um so it's my number six. Uh hold on a second. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're number six. Yes. Um so uh we're still in the war. Or oh, no, we're not in the war, but we're in the aftermath of the war. You see the theme that's emerging here. Um it is 1946. Uh, Hollywood classic, The Best Years of Our Lives, directed by William Wyler. Um, Still need to see which, it. Uh, you haven't seen? I have it on DVD. I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Oh, you must watch this. Um, really good film, um, obviously, because in my top ten. Uh, great cast. You've got um, Frederick March, Myrna Loy, Dana Andrews, and Teresa Wright. Um, but um, you've also... Um, You've, you've also got this incredible performance by a man named um, Harold Russell, uh, who was a uh, who had been in the war and who had lost his arms, both of them, uh, in the in the war. And he plays a sailor uh, who's lost his arms. And um, his performance in this film, as a non-professional actor, is so so good. It, it's sort of you know you've got Dana Andrews and Frederick March, who are two of the biggest movie stars of this era who get completely you know that you remember this guy um and um you know his scenes are just it, it's truly heartbreaking i mean if you haven't guessed it it's about three soldiers coming out of the war one of them is in the army one of them is in the navy one of them is in the air force they come back to their hometown and it's tough you know <laughs> um and they struggle but they get through it it's a long movie um it's a real it's a classic just sort of meaty hollywood drama with great script great acting you know really professionally directed by william wyler um and um and and it's just it's such a rich tapestry of a cast you've got a brilliant hoagie carmichael uh cameo or, or, or a sort of small part um and uh you know just i i just um i i really love this uh really love this film um and i think it really speaks to the bravery of hollywood too in the afterward aftermath of the war go from making essentially propaganda pictures to making pictures that are a bit more complex uh you know so you've got this and you've got your um gentleman's agreement and crossfire and stuff but this was the one that really was a big movie i mean like um th this one best picture and, and all sorts of other things um and um 
you know was was a genuinely sort of massive film and 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 is still remembered as such so it's it's just a you know and it deals with stuff like ptsd and 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 feelings of uselessness and dislocation in in society and you know and, and disability and 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 but it also has great romance and yeah i can't say enough nice things about it i mean it's not like you don't watch it's not like a tarkovsky movie you're not watching this to be like wow what cinema you know it's like look at what the, it's it's directed as i say with very professionally it's not arty in any way shape or form it's just a good black and white movie um done by a master of that form um but it um but it's just such a delight and um i i think it's probably quite underseen i mean even though it was a huge deal when it came out i i compared to something like casablanca and and things like that i, I would be I, I don't think it has the same um cachet so um if you haven't seen it go check it out um it's um it's great they actually i would recommend even watching it in bites because it could work as a little mini series almost uh if you wanted to do it that way yeah because it's like two hours and something minutes long isn't it like yeah it's like two and a half hours yeah so yeah i definitely couldn't get through the whole thing because i have a baby so yeah Yeah. i sympathize you have to watch it in like little increments little increments yes between happy changes uh okay so what have you got for us at your neck on your next uh where are we now six yeah i'm at six so uh my number six is a directorial debut from a known actor who uh somehow managed to make no not no (laughs) who somehow managed to make everyone in the 1930s believe that they were being invaded by aliens and and it is Orson Welles' classic film, Citizen Kane, which uh, there was a movie made about the making of the film, Mank, which came out three years ago, directed by David Fincher. Which was fine. I, I really I really liked it, mainly just because... It I, was I, fun. It, but it the whole fun. old Hollywood, I just love that kind of stuff. And it's just... Yeah, yeah no, I, just, I liked it, but it, I, a bit like, you know, it was... Yeah. But I get why people didn't really like it as much. Citizen anyway. Kane is really good. Can Citizen, I tell Kane, you... Citizen Kane is amazing. Uh, I, I Can I tell you something? Sure. I had this at number five, but I crossed it out. It was a heartbreaking decision, but there is actually no Orson Welles film on my list. So I'm really grateful for you because I love Ambersons. I love Citizen Kane. I love The Lady from Shanghai. Fuck it. I love The Stranger, but I don't, uh, I just couldn't find room for Orson Welles on my list. I'm very grateful for you for picking this. Yeah. I mean, I, we, the first time I watched this was, I was in Denmark. I hadn't moved to Denmark at this time. I was, 14 or 15 we were visiting our grandparents i was with my mother wow this is this is a great story and everyone is and i because i had it on dvd but i i knew of the film i knew like because i'd seen the simpsons they had spoofed it a lot and 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 all that and all those aspects so i kind of so i what bobo bobo (laughs) so i went into the film knowing all the references and everything like that but i was still just amazed by it because like i think he was doing stuff with that camera that not a lot of people were doing in the 1940s well, like he, was, he he wasn't doing it but that, that i have to say but here, the way he uh, shot the film with greg tolan as a cinematographer it's greg tolan shot the film yeah like, and ed- edited by robert wells, i don't think wells had very much to do with the cinematography to tell you the truth i i i think it's so much of it's tolan if you look at you know what he'd been doing previously he'd worked with john ford on grapes of wrath you know he's I don't know, man, but like I'm sure Wells pushed him to be more bold. But yeah, I just German expressionist. I feel like Wells. Everyone always talks about this film as like a Wells, you know, Gesamtkunstwerk. And say it is a it is a team effort. So I just, yeah, I just really want to make, and and that's why I think it's important that 
I will say this for David Fincher's movie that he kind of rehabilitates Herman Mankiewicz because you know, he also wrote the fucking thing. Yeah. And he's, you know, the whole credit of who what, who should be credited on the yeah. screenplay and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I will say, yeah, I mean, Citizen, I mean, Orson Welles was a very larger-than-life figure. He was this very sort of alter person. You call him yeah. fat. What? You call him no, fat. No, I wasn't calling him fat. He was just larger <laughs> because he was a legendary person. Yeah. And everything. What's <laughs> the wine advert? <laughs> when he's drunk, those outtakes. Have you ever seen those? I don't. I you might have sent them to me once, but I haven't. I haven't actually. Oh, you looked them up. Uh, his his wine ad. Maybe, maybe, yeah, it, it, it's very um, it's hilarious. Anyway, yes, awesome. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I was very fascinated by the movie. I was very engaged with the story, even though I kind of knew the twist and everything about you know Rosebud and all that. And but I I like the the structure of the film. Like it has that kind of you know news of the world. The the, the way that it kind of goes through his whole history before we've actually, you know, seen, you know, him in the movie, we get this whole backstory of who he is. And then the movie goes much deeper into that, into who Charles Foster Kane was and, um, you know, who's based off William Randolph Hearst. And, um, you know, we learned from people that who knew him and who grew up with him, you know, people like, you know, Joseph Cotton's character, um, Everett Sloan is one of Everett Jedediah Leland. And I thought it was a really interesting, it's a really good, like, cool character study about, and also I think the movie has a very interesting, it has a very nuanced way that it looks at wealth and, you know, and prioritizing, (laughs) prioritizing wealth and power over, like, the little things that actually are really meaningful, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think this is a really good film to re-watch if you've just finished Succession, for example. I yeah, think Succession exactly. is very much a kind of 21st century analogue to Citizen Kane. Um, re- yeah, I mean, it's... I think for a while it became a bit of a... Um, it became fashionable to dump on Citizen Kane because it was the BFI number one movie for ages. And Wasn't it Sight and Sound as well? Sorry, yeah, well, that's the BFI. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Sight and Sound is their magazine. Uh, and um the um the, the the i think the fashion was to say oh ambersons is better i i actually prefer the magnificent ambersons to system kane but that's just me because i like the story more i still uh, have system kane is more of a cinematic achievement but um yeah it, 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 there's no getting around it it is a terrific film you know you cannot um deny it that and it is it's a stupendously interesting one as well i mean but it also has this inbuilt curse in it you know that it is this movie that tried to make a point and it flew too close to the sun hearst did try and destroy it didn't manage that but what happened was kind of through no fault of hearst's was that wells was given the right of final cut. He made the film he wanted to make, but it wasn't the film that necessarily everyone wanted to see. And so he was yeah. denied that right for the rest of his life. And so, you know, he talks about this in interviews later on. He's like, he's like a, a boy who's been given the greatest ever train set. Yeah. And uh, and then he 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 does never he never gets that power ever again. And so it's just um it's there is this little tragedy in 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 there. And it's so interesting how Wells and Kane kind of resemble one another. You know, it, it's it's this life imitating art thing is 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 curious too. So there's so much depth just in the film as a artifact, even yeah. even you know, outside of the movie itself. So I'm glad it's on our list. Um yeah. I'm sorry I cut it out, but I think I think 
you'll agree with the film that I replaced it with. So at my number five is another film by a larger than life figure, John Houston, um, who I think gets forgotten a little bit sometimes, but I think he's really one of the great, great directors. And the film I picked uh, is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which... I've only seen that film in like little bits. I've never really seen it all the way through, but I actually do have, I went to London recently and I actually did buy the sort of Blu-ray HMV uh, version of the film, which has the DVD and the Blu-ray version. So I'm looking forward to watching that as well. And I also- Oh just, man, do yourself a favor, watch that like tonight. Like it's yeah. so funny. And speaking, of, uh, and speaking of John Houston, I have also, I did also buy the Maltese Falcon. And then I also okay. got uh, on deadly on dangerous ground, which uh, I haven't seen before. Oh my goodness, that's a really good film. Okay, we'll put yeah, your fucking anyway. DVDs away. Yeah. Stop. There you go. Yes, on dangerous. It's very it's very hard to stay on track when you're just like waving DVDs at me. On dangerous ground is a very very good film. Um, yeah. Not Treasure of Sierra Madre. Go. Treasure of Sierra Madre is one of the most amazing adventure movies of all time. Uh, it presages the Wild Bunch um, beautifully. Peckinpah, I think, really makes the Wild Bunch as kind of a follow-up to Madre, maybe even a remake. Um, it's a fantastic trio of performances. But, uh, you've got um, Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt, and Walter Houston. But what I love about this film is, in many ways, it's a love letter from a son to a father. You know, John Houston wrote this film for his father, and his father, acting it, won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for it. Um, and I love that relationship. I love seeing that sort of played out in the film. Um, I think the 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 way Houston kind of stamps his style onto uh, Hollywood with this and with the Maltese Falcon is so compelling. You know, he is. He it's hard to pin down exactly what Houston is, and he makes some turkeys. Like he make, but he's making good movies right up almost to the nineteen eighties. In fact, he directs films in the eighties. I think. Um, uh, I think the well, last... he, does, he does only direct films in the seventies. You know, he does. Yeah, um, he did. He did Wise do Blood um, and... Wise Blood, which we talked about, which I talked about on a Holmes movies recommended. Yeah, episode. and also the um, uh, man who would be king. But yeah, so he has a long career, you know, and um, I, I always think he's sort of similar to Howard Hawks, but a, a little bit more of a polymath than Hawks because he also writes his own scripts, and he's so um, he's such an effective writer. Um, and he's also really good in front of the camera. I mean, don't forget Chinatown. And he's in this movie too. Uh, yeah, he plays he, the he's guy a... that Humphrey Bogart keeps trying to get money off. Yeah. Um, anyway, if you haven't seen the film, it's about three uh, kind of, well, two younger kind of losers who are drifting around Mexico-Americans who fall in with this older prospector guy played by Walter Houston. They go off into the Sierra Madre and they find gold. And then it starts to tear them apart. And Bogart's character in particular becomes this, um, you know, suspicious, paranoid guy and it ends up sort of destroying him. And there's a, by the way, this is terrific Simpsons parody uh, of, of this with the comic book, you know, the, the, the rare comic book oh, and then yeah. the art and Millhouse. You know, it's, it's just, um, but yeah. Um, and it's got the, um, it's got the Mexican bandits and that brilliant line, we don't need no stinking badges. And um you know, there's good shootouts, there's good uh, peril, and you know, it, and, and the location um, photography is 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 wonderful. So, yeah. um, you know, really, um, really important film and just a, just a great, like, entertainment. I just don't think you, you get 
better adventure films than this and 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 i think you know it inspires everything from as i say the wild bunch to indiana jones so um you know it's a huge film in the, in the history of um sort of popular hollywood so that's well, and, uh, and also uh spike lee's the five bloods which also is kind of like a slight i don't yes. know i wouldn't call it a no, remake it, is, but it definitely it a takes remake. a lot yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Anyway, what's what's at your number? Um, where are we? Five? Yeah, uh, this my number five is a film I feel you might have a little bit higher, and it is Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death. You're right, it is higher on my list. Can we wait? Yes. Okay, so my number four <laughs> yes. is also a Powell and Pressburger film. So I've done something that I never usually do, and I put two films by the same directors on my list but that is because in the 1940s emmerich powell and excuse me michael powell and emmerich michael powell and emmerich presper this is baby brain going on here yeah uh, directed some of the greatest movies that have ever been made and 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 you can't just say oh i'll put one of them on the list it's just not good enough so uh i had to leave some of them off because you know black narcissus for example for me, one of the greatest movies of all time, I had to leave off because I can't just make the whole list Powell and Pressburger. But anyway, um, I put on in number four, The Red Shoes, which is completely just singular. You know, you, you can make the case with Black Narcissus that it's kind of similar enough to A Matter of Life and Death in terms of its achievements technically and what it, its kind of emotional punch. But the Red Shoes is unlike any movie that's ever been made by anyone. Um, it's combination of cinematography, dance, romance, acting, you name it. It is completely alone. Um, it has no peers. You might, other films have tried. An American in Paris really faint. You know, Gene Kelly saw The Red Shoes and was like, we need to do the same thing. American Paris doesn't come close. Great movie, but it doesn't come close. Um, the Red Shoes is a um um you know it it is this uh it it, it it it's so um it's so vivid you know in the way that it uses the narrative and, and the music and the color and the dancing you know and the actual you know norma shearer who was a ballerina you know actual professional dancers um and um and while it's directed by this powerhouse duo the uh Powell and Pressburger, you know, the, 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 the were together to, you know, they formed this team called the Archers. Um, the film in many ways, I think, belongs to its cinematographer, who was Jack Cardiff, who... One of the best was, cinematographers of all time. Yes, and who was, you know, filming with, you know, this colour process, Technicolor, which he borrowed from Hollywood, and which, um, you know, he basically did his own thing with you know he he, he was like yeah thank you very much I've, I've i've read the instruction manual and i'm going to totally smash it to pieces and make my own color palette that is completely just the the the, the wild saturation of the colors in this film is 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 almost overwhelming um it's um it, it you know that there is a there's there are some interior scenes where there are these reds and blacks and blues that just sort of pop out at you. I mean, it's so like it's 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 almost like not psychedelic exactly, but it's 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 like a really visceral sort of color experience. I don't think when I think like epic color cinematography, I think you 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 know this film pops into my mind. Um, it's I remember also, some of the, I remember some of the clips from 
a personal journey through filmmaking american or personal yeah the the, my, the martin scorsese documentary where he's talking about the red shoes i remember some of the clips from that looked very striking like all the cinematography and how the move the camera moves yeah um the, there's a very famous dance sequence which is you know it's it is it's a play within a film but the, it's you know which is a classic motif at this point you know there's like the bandwagon and stuff like that um where it's like you know you you're supposed to be in a theater but then you realize that there's no way this could actually be being done in a real theater you know you're in the magic of yeah hollywood at that point or not hollywood i should say um of, of british cinema um and it's you know this 45 minute dance sequence that's just entirely uh, i think we talked about it in our top 10 dance episode, we might have done we? yeah i think we did probably <laughs> who cares yeah. Hey, okay, so the red shoes is amazing. We will talk more about Powell and Pressburger further on up the list. What uh what's at your number four? Uh my number four is a Christmas movie and it's a wonderful life. Well, you see, this was another hard decision I had to make, and I don't have it on my list. I'm glad you have it. Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, of course. Yeah. Um which is a interesting interestingly enough, that film is in the public domain, and I think it is. It is, yeah, it is. But I, I feel like there's a clause where some people have said, "You're not allowed to remake it. You're not going to remake clause. this movie." Yeah, no, no one could remake this film. You'd have to, you'd have to resurrect Jimmy Stewart. This is the Jimmy Stewart film, isn't it? Yeah, and also you don't have to fucking watch the bastardized, color colorized version of the film. <gasps> it looks awful. Which oh. I've seen clips of like a colored version of Casablanca, and it just looks so. It just looks what stupid. You, you could just. That? It's just like I mean, it it it's made in black and white, and it looks great. You don't need to jazz it up with color and make it look. You're shit. not jazzing it up. You're fucking it up. Like yeah. it's like black and white is the color, idiot. Like, yeah, it's that you don't get the shape. The, like when because it the film is shot in black and white. And I don't want to say chiaroscuro because I don't want to sound like a ponce, but like fucking hell, chiaroscuro. Yeah. Like it doesn't exist without black and white. You fucking numpty, Douglas. Don't watch color movies that are meant to be black and white, okay? Yeah, exactly. I just love the idea of Dougie watching anything from this list. He's going to look it over once and then just be like, I'm going to go watch Independence Day. <laughs> That's a good movie. No, it isn't. But, Carry but, on. But not at 40s film. Uh, no, so yeah, It's a Wonderful Life. I remember we watched this for the first time over Christmas three years ago. You know, it was like slight mini lockdown, and you had just come, you had just breached the Atlantic Wall. We just escaped. Yes, we got, escaped. Got yeah. the fuck out of America, which was just going through like a. Well, we we don't need to talk but, about. But, but, but actually, for once, you're you're talking about the time and place we watched this film is relevant because this is a film that's about a particular vision of America that's both very um optimistic but also has a dark underside yeah and what's the bad guy's name lionel barrymore's character um uh it, it, it's uh mr potter mr po- potter potter. potter is he is like the Koch brothers or trump or murdoch or whoever you know he represents that to me watching the film and it is so interesting He's logan to roy <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I mean, he 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 is that kind of plutocrat, you know, and you know, a, a a baron who just owns everything, wants to own everything, but also is completely just mendacious and nasty and horrid and and causes suffering and and I love the end scene where the community rallies around, yeah, our hero, you know, who's fallen on such hard times. But I think people think of this film, especially given its title, as being this like 
uh, candy-coloured sort of optimistic. It's it's a bleak film. Like it's yeah. a hard film. You know, it's yeah, a I film mean... about like des- becoming so desperate that you want to kill yourself. You know, I mean, it, and and it's a film about you know ruin and destitution and you know and the the. Well, this was the film that James Stewart was. This was James Stewart's first post-war movie, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And yeah, and he had been a he had been in combat in the in uh, he'd flown bombers uh, over Germany, um, and um, and I think you can see that in his performance. And of course, you know, in a few years, he's going to be doing those brilliant westerns with Anthony Mann. Um, but yeah, no, it's. I think I think this is one of those films where people look at it, they might think, oh, it's a bit like Casablanca. It's just a you know, it's a Hollywood, it's an excellent classic Hollywood film. It's more than that. It's way, way more yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah. I think I watched it a second time last year during Christmas, and I noticed a lot of character stuff that I didn't really notice the first time. I think just because I was just I'm watching It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. This is like a classic movie, and then just sort of yeah, seeing all see the, yeah, seeing all the nuances in the characters also just like mr potter's character and also the wage all the sort of little things that that jimmy stewart brings to um to ed bailey like physically and also in his face like it's a great performance especially when he comes home after losing the money or uncle billy loses the money thomas mitchell's character and you know the whole devastation that he has when he's holding his daughter and that's a very hard scene to watch i didn't i was very that's a like that whole moment is pretty is pretty well, there, there are so many just like the, mo- the there are moments in this film that in the hands of um less able artists would have become kind of cheesy like that one there's also the bit where when their children the his love interest you know who ultimately become his wife you know she whispers in the ear that he can't hear out of that she was going to love him forever and i just find that just so moving and there are all these like wonderful just like Tom Hanks <laughs> moments for one of a better word. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. That are just, but, 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 uh, but it's real in a way that I think is like it's emotionally real in a way that that I think people don't give it maybe credit for who haven't seen it for a while. And and you know people remember the Merry Christmas, y'all, savings a lot. You know, <laughs> like they they think of the end, but I don't think they think enough about the ninety percent of the rest of the movie. Also, what a cast. Thomas yeah. Mitchell, Ward Bond, Gloria Graham, Donna Reed is amazing in this. Um, Donna Reed's great. Yeah, such a good film. Okay, Gloria, I, Gloria Graham as well is also in the movie. I hear crying in the background, so can you drop in the baby music while I quickly go and check on my family? Yeah, sure. Bye, baby, in the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby cradle and fall. Sweet dreams. Are the screams of my daughter coming through in the background? I can't hear her now. Okay, good. She's she's her mother is with her currently, so I just don't want to sound like uh, we have the a um. You know, we're, we're an abusive household because uh, it's just oh, that uh, she doesn't like having her outfit changed at the moment. So if you hear any screams of terror in the background, it's just someone who is struggling against her mother who's trying to get her dressed. So like, anyway, what, what baby didn't like getting, you know, putting stuff on they didn't like? 
They don't baby babies don't like to be messed with. That's what I've learned. Yeah, they don't, leave me they don't, alone. Just don't fuck around with them, and they're fine. And there's like as soon as you try and change their nappy, put them to bed, wake them up, change their clothes, wash them, they're just like fuck that. I don't want that. Anyway, uh, okay. Anyway, number three. Number, number three. three uh, for me is the magisterial and timeless brief encounter by David Lean, written Ooh. of course by Noel Coward. Uh. Um, which um, is is perhaps uh, is perhaps the most most British film of all time. Um, <laughs> it is. It's uh, but it but it is um, you know it, it's completely perfect in every single way. Um, it has the most heartbreakingly beautiful love story at its core between two completely wonderful actors, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. Um, and then there's a, a terrific uh, supporting cast that includes Stanley Holloway. Um, but it is, you know, it's the, it's the ultimate movie about, um, you know, two people, an adulterous um, love that can't uh, last. And the um, unbearable, sweet sadness of that. Um, and there's, you know, this is this is a thing that's been a story that's been told hundreds of times in film and television. But there's a there's beauty and a sort of perfection in the way it's rendered in Brief Encounter uh, and, an, and an artfulness and an inventiveness um, that is completely um, uh, sort of um, transcendent, I think is the word. There's a bit where she's on the train and she starts daydreaming about Trevor Howard and she's laying all these images and that are playing in the train window. And it's sort of this window of, into her imagination in that moment. There are the scenes with uh, her home life, you know, that feels so small and claustrophobic compared to her exciting, uh, relatively speaking, time with Trevor Howard. But it's also interesting that, you know, they don't make the husband a shit. Like, he's lovely. The kids are yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah. The home life is nice. It's just that it's ordinary. It's not, you know, this is this is people who got married young and then spent the rest of their lives wondering, you know, what more there might have been. And, and of course that it also is just implying that this is these are two people who fell in love you know this there's no this isn't just a quick opportunistic fling these are two people who have met and despite their best efforts completely fallen for each other um and um and the fact that it doesn't work is heartbreaking but there's also just a sort of a, a restrained beauty beautiful sort of perfection in how the film ends i think um and and, and it's just a when you think about the people involved, you've got David Lean behind the camera and Noel Coward writing the script. I mean, like, how can you go wrong? <laughs> so, so good. And it was filmed right at the end of the war. It came out in 1945. It was filmed as the war was coming to a close. Um, they broke, they had one day off from filming and that was VE Day. You know, it's, again, you know, that sort of document of of a time and a place. Um, yeah, it's a, it's just a, a lovely, a lovely film to to watch and revisit and watch again and again and again. Um, yeah, there's not much more I really want to say about it. Um, so, should we move great, on to your great cinematography number? by uh, Robert Krasko, who did other films oh, like yes. uh, On Man Out and The Third Man. Yeah, Krasko is great. Well, um, we will uh, we'll return to him in a moment. Um, what's your number three? So, my number three was Out of the Past, which we've uh, talked about uh, a bit. Already. That's a high on the list. So you you really like that movie? Huh? Yeah, I really like it a lot. I think I don't. I mean, 
would you say it's like the granddaddy of like the noir films like it's the first ever like it's the it, i feel like it's the no it's it's a it's a it's a film noir film movie that sets the stage of what a film noir should be like the flashbacks know, the cinematography quite... and the femme fatale like it sets the sort of it's one of those early films in the 40s that kind of sets the ground rules a little bit i don't know would you agree with that or maybe would you sort of say there's another well, the thing is that? it's a bit late yeah so yes i agree it has a lot of the ground rules but i think it's a bit late i would say murder my sweet which came out three years earlier probably is more yeah. of a sort of establishing the rules of film noir in that way um or the the sort of stylistic tendencies but i think out of the past comes out of those you know 47 it comes out in 47 i think 47 48 those are really rich years for film i mean that's for example that's also when the lady from shanghai comes out yeah. um you know so you've got a lot of different uh you know but 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 film noir is already sort of established um uh laura you know came out in 1944 um but um so you know it's i do think it's a sort of consistent um <clears throat> style across the decade but um yeah i mean i'm looking at other films from 47 uh, you've got crossfire as well and T-Men you know so there's a lot of really really good film noir happening here but it's just it does rise above the rest of the pack um and um but I also think it has I think it has an influence on not just noir as a style but I think on later thrillers as well and I think right up into like the the our era you know yeah I just feel like when people talk about film noir and like, like talk about the best ones I feel like this one is is is, is the film that gets talked about the most Yes and no. I think sometimes it people get sidetracked and think about the big sleep or whatever. But I, I, the big sleep is very very good. But I don't think it has the the power of this of this movie. And then yeah. there's obviously things like Touch of Evil, but that's later. That's outside of the the real kind of body of film art. Anyway, we get we've done whole podcasts on this. So yeah, um, of course. So what's my number two? Yeah, it's your number two. My number two is the third man, um, the uh, the the nineteen forty seven um, classic uh, filmed by, no, sorry, nineteen forty nine, but it was filmed in nineteen forty seven. Just fucking David Selznick held it back for so long. Um, it um, it was filmed by Robert Crasco. It's directed by Carol Reed. Uh, it's written by Graham Greene. Again, another one of these like, who the how the hell did they get this many amazing people involved? Uh, you know the. Uh, I didn't realize it was written by Graham Greene. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was co-produced by two of the most heavyweight producers of all time. On on one side of the Atlantic, you've got Alexander Corder. On the other side, you've got uh, David O. Selznick. The assistant director of this film was Guy Hamilton. So, like, it's who, pretty. Stacked. Who went off to do a bunch of Bond movies? Yep. Uh, the cast includes Ada Valley, Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton. And Trevor Howard, got Bernard Lee in there, Wilfred Hyde-White, a bunch of brilliant German and, German and Austrian actors, including Paul Herberger and Ernst Deutsch. But the star of the film is Vienna. Yeah. It's the city of Vienna, post-war, bombed out, broken down, and um, filmed with, with this documentary attention to detail by the Krasker and Reed, but also, you know, with this stylized element, you know, William Wyler, talk about William, so William Wyler, who, as I was saying, didn't do anything arty-farty with Best Years of Our Lives, just kept it real, played real, played it real straight. Yeah. He sent Carol Reed a spirit level after this film 
and said, here's, here, here's, you might, you might want to, this might help you keep the camera steady next time <laughs> because all the shots are at an angle. Yeah. And yeah. It, everything just, is like it really tells angles. you a lot about Weiler and his approach to like classic movie making versus what they were trying to do in this film. And it's it, no film feels or looks like the third man. The other thing that sets it apart, of course, is the music by Anton Karras, the zither music. It became this big hit at the time. Uh, and it was just because he was playing at the, the they when they went to Vienna, the producers in Vienna put on a party and Karas was playing at the party. And um, uh, and um, Carol Reed was like, I, that, that music, I, I want that. And so they got him to do the, the soundtrack. So it has, um, it sounds like no other movie as well. Um, I, I love, I went to Vienna once years ago with Lily and I loved going to the locations where they filmed this because and that's what's so cool about this movie in, a, in an era where there's so many sets and so much studio work being done that the, this goes out into the streets of Vienna and to real places you can still go and has fun you know with those locations and then of course does that great scene on the Ferris wheel and um but it, for me it's 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 the ultimate post-war European movie it's the ultimate kind of look what we have just been through kind of film um, and it has, you know, the presence of the Americans and the Russians and the British and then the, the Austrians, you know, all together, all reckoning with this disaster. And it is so uh, potent. Um, so is just a really good, like, mid-century thriller, like, complex and dark and full of um, questions, you know, and it's so, uh, so atmospheric. Uh, I just, yeah, I just fucking love this film. That's it, that it one of the... One of, it, the, the two... The films I have in my top two are in my letterbox, you know, top four. Two, two they make up fifty percent of it. Yeah, and well, I, the, the, the third, third man to me is just well, one of my man. absolute, yeah, absolute favorite movies. So, um, what does have one of the what does have one of the best final shots of any movie? Just that whole, yes, yes, just yes. that one shot of you see her cemetery. walking past him in the in the cemetery. I think that's just such a great moment, which I think Scorsese does a little homage to in The Departed, a slight homage to it. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, what's your number two? So my number two is Murder My Sweet. Oh, a, another great, another brilliant noir. Yeah, Edward I, I love this movie a lot. I remember watching it in boarding school and just being completely just fascinated by it. And I think this is kind of where my love for like detective fiction sort of blossomed. I mean, I was a fan of it before, but this is where I was like, I love just mystery stories. I love murder mysteries. I, I just, I, I just think that whole world that these movies create these kind of smoky you know dark and very sort of mysterious worlds are so great and you kind of wish you were like philip marlowe and inhabiting inhabiting these worlds and kind of solving mysteries drinking a lot and getting knocked on the head and then somehow still managing to be alive because dick powell's philip marlowe goes through so much shit in this film you're amazed that he's still breathing yeah, yeah, he because he's like he's he's <laughs> drugged, he's hit over the head, and then he's like, "I want some, I want a scotch and some eggs." <laughs> at the end of it, yeah, it's yeah, like... yeah. No, he's he the the drugging sequence is is brilliantly done as well with the, yeah. the cobweb in front of his face, and so the visual effects there are really in interesting. And you know, it's it's kind of amazing that it was Dick Powell who got the part, Mister Musical. Known, yeah, he was known as a song and dance guy in the nineteen thirties, not just a like any song that he was always playing the like fresh-faced innocent kid in the musicals you know um yeah that's true he's he's so good as 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 marlo he's so good as the this like wisecracking tough detective um yeah and i mean 
we've said this before on a few episodes, particularly when we've discussed this movie, but every time I've read the books, I always imagine Dick Powell's Philip Marlowe. Yes, so do I. Not yeah. Bogan. Because I guess it's partly because Powell is less of a star now. Yeah. So you don't have all these other associations. Like when you watch Bogart playing Marlowe, it really is Bogart playing Marlowe. You're not like, oh, it's Philip. It's a, this is Philip Marlowe movie. It's, this is a Bogart movie. Yeah. It's a bit like with Harrison Ford playing Jack Bryan. It's like, oh, this is just Harrison Ford. You know? <laughs> it's the, it's yeah, like the, the persona of the star is already so in, in, entrenched. Whereas Dick Powell was a star, but he was a star for something else. So he was, like a, watching, he was he was a star of musicals, and I think he was like watching John Wayne play Shylock. You know, it's not, it's not you know, it's, it's just very incongruous. You know, um, yeah, yeah, just let I that like image. The idea you. of seeing John Wayne <laughs> like, doing Shakespeare. Oh Jesus! I mean, no, not just yeah. Is this a dagger I see before me? Oh, no, he could. I think John Wayne could do. I think John Wayne could do Macbeth. I, 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 I would, yeah. I would back him to do Macbeth, but just not, yeah. maybe not Shylock. Um, but. Look, um, if I can wrestle it back to the topic, but uh, the um, the movie is directed by the Dimitrik as well, who was very interesting. Um, you know, he was involved with the communist witch hunts, which we haven't talked about, but this is obviously the era where the crazy anti-communism starts uh, raising its head in, in American in Hollywood, um, and the McCarthyism and all that, and careers that are ruined um, very shamefully. Um, but um, you know he he has such a a, a brilliant um, eye for um, how to direct a film like this because he makes sure that there's a just you know enough uh, uh, humor in there. Um, it's really funny. Well. There's some good comedy in this movie. Yeah, and it's not like a. It is basically a B movie. Yeah, uh, and that's what's so good about. It. I mean, both this and Out of the Past are B movies. And were treated as B movies by the studios, and that's what's so great because I think those B movie directors like Dimitrik and Tourneur, they didn't have as much scrutiny, so they were able to do they do what they want, yeah, and have fun with it. And they do, and they really. I mean, I would, I think this would make a great double bill without of the past. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I like some of the sort of film trickery that they do as well, which is really cool. Like, there's the scene where we see the big character. What's his name? Moose uh, Malloy. Moose Malloy played by Mike Mazurki. Mike Mazurki. <laughs> yeah. Who um he's he's he looks he the first time we see him is in the reflection of the window, which is one of my favorite shots in the movie where yes. we see him looking out the window and he's just standing behind him and they and he looks like a giant. And the way that they did that was actually really cool, is that they put a plate of glass, very thin a plate of glass, uh sort of in front of the camera and it was used to make Mike Mazurki uh, like appear that he was like there and like a giant on the screen. Like the way they did that is really cool. And um, like the whole drug sequence, the sort of nightmare sequence is pretty effective and very, I think yeah. quite frightening as well. And the whole- Well, I think it's quite, I think it's uh, again, influential in how that sort of thing got depicted later on by other directors, you know, including in our era. Um, you know whether or not people know that they're calling back to Murder My Sweet, but Murder My Sweet I think does a bunch of stuff that, yeah, you know, as it says, as I said earlier, you know, sets some sets some ground rules, makes some influence. Mm. Come on, so, I um, want to be. I like you to come be the guy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, brilliant film. Should we go to our number one? I bet we both have the same movie. Uh, yeah. Well, my number one is actually a film we've already discussed, and that's the Third Man. 
Oh, so you yeah. don't have any room on your list for my number one, which is a matter of life and death. Well, matter of my, I had I had matter of life and death at uh, where did I have matter of life and death? Sorry, I had it at number five. Sorry, we do it. You you you're right. I have a porridge brain at the moment. I am so sorry. <laughs> you, have, you have you have baby, so that's that's yes, that's I have baby on the brain. Matter yeah. of life, you're right. It was at number five. So, um, so as I say, I put in two movies by the same director because. The Red Shoes is what it is. A Matter of Life and Death is what it is. Both films are unlike any other. The films, most of the films on my list are uniquely singular. I think, And that's one of the things that's so interesting about the 40s. And I was looking through my letterboxed list of other films from the 40s and thinking about other films I could have put in. Citizen Kane, Day of Wrath, Germany Year Zero, um, Black Narcissus, Children of Paradise. Um, no, a bunch of these films are uh, completely singular. Cat People, even, I was toying with. Uh, or or um, um, the, the David Lean Great Expectations. You know, there's something happening in the 40s. There's a, I think because of the crisis that's going on in the world, there is this like explosion of creativity. And I think there are all these movements of people fleeing and feeling i think that there's a pitch of feeling going on because of what's happening in the world that dissipates in the 50s and that's unlike anything in the 30s and i also think the film techniques and and uh expertise have reached a kind of crescendo as well you know we're sort of we're, we're 50 years into this art form kind of you know give or take and um and I think for me anyway, A Matter of Life and Death is a crystallization of all those things. Um, it's the war. It's a, a film made in response to the war. It was it was commissioned practically because they wanted to make a film that was kind of patching up some of the differences between Brits and Americans who were allies in the war, you know? And, um, and so it was kind of supposed to be a propaganda picture, but by the time it got made, the war had ended. And so it becomes instead one of the greatest romantic, magical, realist flights of fancy pieces of filmic philosophy ever produced. Um, it is a, it is poetic, it, it's poetic. It's, uh, it's, it's heady, it's intellectual, it's funny, it's romantic, it's exciting. It is fantastical, you know, it is completely imaginative. Um, it's utterly compelling. Uh, it's about a man who, a pilot who uh, bails out of his bomber without a parachute as it's crashing, crashing, and is supposed to die. But he doesn't die. He washes up on a beach and said he meets the woman that he was talking to on the radio. They fall in love. And then we go up to heaven or the afterlife and realize there's been a clerical error. They send someone down to get him. And he says, hang on a minute. I've lived. There's been an error. I should be allowed more life. And it ends up in this heavenly trial. And of course, this is all happening, at least in our, you know, we can interpret it this way, that this is happening in his brain, that somehow he survived the crash and that he's suffered terrible brain damage. But you can believe that, or you can also believe that there is an afterlife and there is hope to live on. And I think for an audience member watching this in the 1940s, that would have been incredible to see, you know, and those scenes in the afterworld, which by the way, the afterworld is in black and white and in the real world is in color, where you see all the people all in uniform, the people who have been killed in the war, um, gathering around to watch this heavenly trial. Um, you know, the, the, I feel like the, the hair stand up on the back of your neck, you know, it's, it's so, um, 
it's so poignant and so stark you know um so i think that um you know as a document of the 1940s as well even in its own, even though this is a studio movie they don't do any location filming really um it's um it still tells you something about the time it was made in um it's also just beautifully written beautifully acted marius goring uh kathleen byron very very small part for richard attenborough um but then you've got um um you've you've got these central performances by kim hunter and um david niven and of course um you've got roger livesey as well as dr reeves who's just so 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 good um and it's it's a film that really takes its audience seriously it sort of asks questions it's clever you know it's it's it makes references uh cultural references most significantly to a midsummer night's dream that it assumes its audience will pick up on and um i think that, that that's great and I, I i love that the film has the 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 gumption for want of a better word to do that so um so yeah i uh, I, I love this film dearly it was one of the first films that i watched I was about 10 years old, where I really understood that film was a thing. It wasn't just something that was made that, you know, oh no, I, I guess it wasn't just something you took for granted. It was something that had been created, something that had been thought about, something that could be tremendous, you know? And I don't think I'd ever taken that idea seriously before. And then I saw this, and I think I realized then that that's, you know, that 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 was a sort of awakening for me and it is my favorite movie i mean it is the best for me the best distillation of what i look go to in films i want to be entertained delighted but i also want to have be shown something i've not seen before and and to think about things you know i i don't think it's fair to say that film can't be um stimulating intellectually i don't think it's fair when kenneth clark says in civilization that film is often vulgar and always ephemeral i think to say that to apply the word ephemeral to the a matter of life and death is 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 madness you know to 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 think of this as anything other than you know a, a great piece of art you you've got to have rocks in your head you know this yeah. is a um this is this is a statement of what can be done with film and what should be done with them um because it, it is also for everyone you don't need a phd to watch this movie um but you do come away from it with a different understanding of um the human condition you have to mm. uh, or at least with an enhanced understanding of it uh it's 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 one of the things you know i've stood in front of great paintings i've been visited some wonderful cathedrals i've read amazing books i've seen incredible operas and plays you know all of this it's up there with that those kind of experiences you know yeah um not to sound too whatever but it is um i i think it's it's truly great art and i think it is also um just a a, a beautiful message from the past about what can happen um at a moment of hopeless feeling sort of apocalyptic crisis um so yeah i'll stop rabbiting on about it um but um yeah, the end of you, ted talk about matter of life and death yeah exactly and uh, anyway watch the movie because it's it's just um 
It's just brilliant. It is a very gorgeous movie. I mean, the set design, the cinematography, it's beautiful. The yeah. way it sort of, you know, uses color cinematography in black and white, it's amazing. The way it does it is good. Jack and also, Carter again, of course. Yeah, Jack Carter is great. And also another thing, it is what it's one of the, well, just to sort of bring it into a sort of, make it sort of relevant today, it is one of the few films, it's one of the many films that inspired Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Like she used this and the red shoes as like inspirations for the design and look of of, of Barbie. Really? Yeah. I love how you've name checked Mission Impossible 2 and Barbie in this top 10. I really, if I was going to try and pick the two films from outside of the 1940s that you were going to pick, I think <laughs> I that's really, anyway, okay, cool. No, it's but, just but like, it, I mean, yeah, but it goes to show, I do think people who know yeah. movies, Martin Scorsese is also one of them. No, Powell and Pressburg. And actually, has to hit a uh, shout out to Martin Scorsese, whose who's film foundation has done so much good work restoring these films. Yeah. And Thelma Shoemaker was married to uh, Michael Powell. She was. Yes. Yeah. And if you don't know who Thelma Shoemaker is, then you're not as big of a film nerd as we are. Yes. Um, it's one of the greatest editors of all time all right you gave it away um uh okay so we talked about the third man already is there anything else you want to say about the third man yeah uh yeah i mean i remember when we watched it for the first time because i think i kind of knew what the reveal was like that kind of pops up halfway through but i kind of put it out of my mind so when it happens in the film i was kind of like it's him because i i was sort of caught up with the rest of the movie and what the whole film is really about and um I love the zither music. I like Joseph Cotton's kind of, you know, fish, you know, put fish out of water and put in a very sort of, you know, different sort of location and him trying to sort of figure out what happened to his friend and then all these other different people coming up to him and using him and and him kind of coming to that sort of realization about who his friend, you know, um, Harry, Harry Lyme really is. I was about to say Harry Kane, but that's not his name. I was blending two Orson Welles Harry characters. Harry fucking Kane! Of all the, again, of all the names for you to darken this podcast with, I was not the one that... <laughs> I don't want to see him popping up in any doorway. Jesus Christ. Um, well, who's Harry Kane? Do I really have to do this? Harry Kane is a footballer who used to play for Tottenham Hotspur, who are shit, and who are Arsenal's main rivals, and he now plays for Bayern Munich because he's a big wanker. He's okay, also an England cool. captain who scored goals against Denmark in the semi-final. So I, yeah, do not have happy I, associations with that name. Okay, okay, okay. I won't bring him up ever again. No, I, I think this isn't Kane. Harry Lime. No, I think, I think, um, yeah, Third Man is one of my four favorite letterbox in the sort of top films in the letterbox. That's there with uh, Pulp Fiction, uh, The Searchers, and uh, The Wild Bunch. Interesting that that's your four. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I might change it because okay. uh, I don't. I feel like because I feel I. I don't know. I feel like there's many films that could. That I feel like are my top. Yeah, Pulp Fiction now. is punching above its weight. There is it. Yeah, that's that's probably like the sort of like teenager version of me being like, "This is the greatest movie ever made." But I might I might change it a little bit. But anyway, yeah. So at the moment, those are my. Well, thoughts. this is a good opportunity for us to segue into uh, ending the podcast and saying that you should follow us on Letterboxd, which is a great social media service for people who like movies, yeah. and. You should also follow us on Facebook. I don't know. Twitter. We're on uh, well, I we are still on Twitter, which is now called X because the guy who runs it is an absolute muppet. And um you could follow us at, at Homes Movies Pod. Like we mentioned, we are going to have an Instagram page. So when stay that's tuned up, for that. stay tuned for that. You can follow us on we'll Letterboxd. Probably tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> or we'll post it on yeah you can follow us on instagram you could if we're like on our separate instagram pages you could find our new instagram page there i'm also on another social media site called blue sky which um what you, yeah it's what one of the blue it's 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 an it's this like when twitter was like going through so many changes and people were kind of jumping ship and having another social media in case twitter decided to implode on itself which seems like it might do blue sky threads which is another one which a lot of people is just crap twitter for instagram isn't it it's basically that but also the thing is about threads it's not here in the european union because it because of some european union laws it's not available in denmark well, yeah, so we probably shouldn't use threads then, seeing as you are in Denmark. Um, okay, fuck it. You'll yeah. follow us where you'll follow us. We will tweet about the Instagram. <laughs> yes. We'll tweet about the Instagram, and we will Instagram about the blue sky. Uh, hope that's clear. Email I need every to go person in the world. Have a family. I need to go now. Yeah. So, um, should we, do we, should, we ra- should we round off our films really quickly, or do you want to? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go through them. Okay, I'll do mine really quickly. So my number 10 was Dumbo. Number 9, Bicycle Thieves. Number 8, Rome Open City. Number 7, Casablanca. Number 6, sorry, Citizen Kane. Number 5, A Matter of Life and Death. Number 4, It's a Wonderful Life. 3, Out of the Past. Number 2, Murder My Sweet, aka Farewell My Lovely. And number 1, The Third Man. Um, okay. My number 10 is Out of the Past. Number 9, Bicycle Thieves. Number 8, Notorious. Number 7, Rome Open City. Number 6, The Best Years of Our Lives. Number 5, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Number 4, The Red Shoes. Number 3, Brief Encounter. Number 2, The Third Man. Number 1, A Matter of Life and Death, which I ranted about pretentiously for an hour. Um, You can edit most of that out. Uh, I'll see you soon, and we can talk about the 1930s. Yes, that'll be fun. I need to do a bit of homework and catch up with some 1930s movies I haven't watched yet. Mm-hmm. All right, man. All right. Have a good have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.